now my video is taking up half the screen and your video is taking up half the screen. Good. How do you even, uh, can you snap it? or so? Oh, there we go. That's kind of cool. Can I make your video small? That's kind of like, why? what is the use case for this? I'm looking at an enormous version of myself yeah. and you're small on the corner now. It's, uh, it's Skype for narcissists. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are digging into the historical archives to cover the acquisition of a company you've probably never heard of, but a product that you absolutely have used. Probably hundreds or maybe thousands or maybe you've even gotten your 10,000 hours uh, on this piece of software. I feel sorry for you if you have. I think I may have. I think I may have. I definitely have. Investment banking. All right, listeners, today we are covering Microsoft's 1987 acquisition of Forethought Incorporated, the makers of PowerPoint. This has the honor. I was going to say dubious honor, but this really is an honor. This was Microsoft's first acquisition and Apple's first investment in another company for strategic investment. Not only that, they were within like three months of each other. I know. Most people don't even know that PowerPoint wasn't homegrown. I mean, Word and Excel were were homegrown applications, but PowerPoint was an acquisition. Yep, an acquisition. Not just an acquisition, a completely separate business line, as we will get into, which is not to say that that is necessarily how we will categorize it on acquisition category, but Microsoft kept it as a business line uh, separately based in Silicon Valley, actually on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley was where PowerPoint was developed. It all comes full circle. All right, we will dive in more. But before we do that, listeners, if you like the show, if you've been listening for a while, if you're new and you happen to like this episode, either way, we would love a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us grow the show and it helps us create more great content. So please take a moment. You can, in, in fact, you could even pause right now and do it. Um, we, we don't mind, seriously. If you are new to the show, you can check out our Slack at acquired.fm. Our next sponsor for this episode is one of our favorite companies and longtime acquired partner, Pilot.com. For startups and growth companies of all kinds, Pilot is the one team for all of your company's accounting, tax, and bookkeeping needs, and in fact, now is the largest startup-focused accounting firm in the U.S. Which is wild, because when we started working with them way back when, they were just a startup themselves, and now they're a billion-dollar-plus company backed by Sequoia, Index, Stripe, and even Jeff Bezos himself. Yep. And speaking of Bezos, we talk all the time on Acquired of Jeff's AWS-inspired axiom that startups should focus on what makes their beer taste better. In other words, only spend your limited time and resources on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and customers and outsource everything else that you do as a company that doesn't fit that bill. And accounting is like example number one of what he's talking about. Every company needs it. It needs to be done by a professional. You don't want to take any risk of anything going wrong. But at the same time, it has zero impact on your product or customers, things you do uniquely well. Yep. So enter pilot. Pilot both sets up and operates your company's entire financial stack. So finance, accounting, tax, even CFO services like investor reporting. From your general ledger all the way up to budgeting and financial sections of board decks, Pilot takes care of all that. 
And they've been doing this now for years across thousands of startups in Silicon Valley and beyond. And there's nobody better who you can trust to both get your finance right and make it easy and painless for you and your company. Yep. And when you say thousands of companies Pilot does this for, David, these are now companies like OpenAI, Airtable, and Scale, as well as e-commerce and other companies. So it's not just that they have experience across startups. They can keep working with you as you scale to the growth phase and beyond. So if your company or a company that you start in the future wants to go back to focusing on what makes your beer taste better, go to pilot.com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes and tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to our friends, the Pilot co-founders, all acquired listeners, if you use that link, you will get 20% off your first six months of service. Thanks, Pilot. So David, we had much teasing of the plot ahead in the intro. Do you want to take us in? How did how did Forethought get started? How did Microsoft buy it? How is PowerPoint the essential part of Microsoft Office today? Or actually, you know, Office 365, a, a part of the uh, Microsoft cloud strategy. How did it all get started? Well, like so many other things, like, like basically everything in modern computing, uh, the origins of PowerPoint can be traced back to Steve Jobs' historic visit, his raid, uh, some might say, on Xerox Park headquarters in late 1979 after Xerox had made a small investment in Apple Computer. And Steve got to peek behind the kimono, famously, and go see the Palo Alto Research Center of Xerox, where they were developing prototypes of their vision of the office computing environment of the future. And that was famously Park was where the graphical user interface was developed, uh, the mouse, the idea of networking, which of course would lead to the internet and podcasting and us recording on Skype and this moment right now. The most important thing created out of the internet, (laughs) podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All comes back there. But no, so how does this relate to PowerPoint? So once Steve had seen the future of the graphical user interface, he brought it back to Apple and basically decreed that this was the direction the company was going in. But of course, Apple had been around for many years before then. There were other product lines in Apple, other computers they made that were command line interface, um, like like DOS before Windows. And those product groups, you know, didn't just shut down. They kept going. There was the Apple II and the Apple III that were both um, being uh, continued to be But David, developed. why join the Navy when you could be a pirate? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're referring, of course, to the, the famous Mac group that Steve starts within Apple where he flies the pirate flag in the building. People who were working on the Apple II and the Apple III and the Apple III were talented people, they sort of saw the writing on the wall too, that Apple was going in the direction of the graphical user interface and first the Lisa and then the Mac. But also they themselves realized that not just was Apple going in this direction, the whole industry was eventually going to go in this direction. And in particular, two folks, the product marketing manager for the Apple III, Taylor Pullman and the software marketing manager for the Apple II, Rob Campbell, they see this feature and they decide to leave Apple and start a startup to pursue this graphical user interface future because they know it's not on the products they're currently working on. 
you know, when we first start doing our research and we start on Wikipedia or we start reading, you know, um, the comprehensive history of this company, you always see the name of the founders, but very rarely do they actually go back before they were the founders of that company. And it seems like without fail, when we start to dig in, and particularly, David, when you start doing your research, like who were these people before? They were ex-Apple, they were ex-General Magic, or they, they were at Stanford Research. You know, there's a very small number of places they could have come from. And it's amazing, you know, where technology in the whole field is today. The world was just not that big. There were not that many institutions or companies. Like everybody spun out of the same few places. There really weren't. I mean, there were the number was in the thousands of people who worked in the technology industry, or at least the software industry. It just wasn't that many people, and there weren't that many companies back in the day. So Taylor and Rob they leave, and and they they see the power of the future of you know the Xerox Park vision, the graphical user interface, uh, interacting with applications that business users are, are working with directly instead of separate you know computer divisions with punch cards and whatnot. But they think that that the Mac and Apple, maybe they're a little bitter because Steve kind of uh, kneecapped their products, but they think that the Mac is not the future. They think the future is bringing the graphical user interface to the massive numbers of IBM PC clones that are out there already uh, and shipping in, in the enterprise. And it turns out that they were right about that. It just wasn't forethought, the company that they founded, that went would do that. <laughs> uh, so they leave Apple. It's the hard part about being a venture investor, David. You can be right about everything. But if you you know pick the wrong horse, pick the wrong timing, pick the wrong specific nuance. You end up with PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a nice consolation prize. Usually you don't get the consolation prize. So Robin Taylor, the end of 1982... They leave, they start this company, they call it Forethought. This is foreshadowing the graphical user interface to come. The vision is they are going to develop an operating system that is going to, like I said, bring a graphical approach, almost a Windows-like approach, some might say, to IBM clone PCs. So they raise $700,000 right after they leave. There's a lot of people that are really excited about this. Shortly thereafter, they raise another $2.5 million from VCs. They attract some great folks, New Enterprise Associates, NEA Invest, uh, Dick Kramlick, who was um, uh, one, of the, one of the founders of NEA, uh, very well-known VC at the time. Uh, he invests, he joins the board. Also, as an independent board member, they get Bob Metcalf, who was the inventor of Ethernet at Xerox Park and by that point in time, he was the chairman of 3Com. So he's their independent board member, literally like Bob Metcalf of Metcalf's Law uh, is the independent board member of this company. There uh, were like 11 people in technology. Like, <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> it's totally incredible. So high flying, huge vision. There's just one problem that a year later, Microsoft announces Windows. While this is now the fall of 1983, they've been working on this for a year. And while Windows wouldn't actually ship for uh, Windows 1.0, I believe, until 1985. Yeah, it still doesn't seem like a good bet. What do you do, right? What do you do? And, 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 and in particular, in the case of Forethought, it's not just that uh, the 800-pound gorilla just stepped into the ring with you and is definitely going to crush you even if you could compete. Apparently, development is really not going well and uh it's kind of a mess and the foundation was the name of the operating system that they were building it wouldn't even compile they couldn't demonstrate it it was just in development hell 
So at this point, they've burned through about $2 million of the $3 million, just over $3 million that they had raised. They made no meaningful progress. They have no prospects. The VCs uh, and the board, basically, they issue an ultimatum. They say, you have to, this is now the spring of 1984, we're going to schedule essentially a demo day. You are going to demonstrate this operating system that you are building. We are going to evaluate it. We're going to bring in outside experts, and we're going to see if there's anything here that we can use. Those VCs, man, they really <laughs> they really hold your feet to the fire. They do the demo day. There's there's nothing. But there is there is some tiny, tiny flicker of good news. And exactly how this happens, even, even though he wrote a whole book on, on the topic, I, I'm still not entirely clear. But somehow, there's a guy who doesn't even work at the company named Robert Gaskins. And he's a mid-level manager at Bell Northern Research, which is sort of the California division of, of Bell. It's one of the five companies in technology in this Yeah, era. one of the five companies in technology. He gets connected with the folks at, at Forethought. And again, he's not, he's like a mid-level manager. He's not part of the company, but he's really excited also about the future of the graphical user interface. Uh, and he wants to join the company. So even though, you know, the market for the company has just been completely swooped in by, by Microsoft and, and the coming Windows product, the product is in development hell. He, he wants to join and he has a vision for what he thinks can be a sort of, uh, "Quote unquote restart of the company." The term "pivot" wasn't uh, wasn't around yet, but that he wants to bring to the company. And this is a good time to say to to Bob, thank you so much for being super gracious and emailing with us to to help us research this episode for for folks who haven't read it. And I would imagine if you are as surprised as I was when I first found out that PowerPoint was an acquisition, you probably haven't read it. But Bob wrote a fantastic book about how this all went down and kind of PowerPoint as a case study and really forethought as a case study and has uh, gave us some really great quotes that uh, that we'll pull out later in the the narrative. So if you're interested in what we're talking out here about here definitely check out bob's book yeah we'll, we'll link to all of it it's uh i love the title it's called sweating bullets and it's so the, good the definitive history of building powerpoint and uh and bob is just um well he's a few more words about bob because he's a pretty interesting guy he had been a grad student at berkeley and he was doing an interdisciplinary phd in english linguistics and computer science uh, which is quite the combination. He ends up dropping out to join Bell Northern Research because he wants to go work in industry in, in computer science. This is the mid-70s. Uh, he knows this is going to be the future. It's sort of like uh, Masa and, uh, when he met with the, uh, uh, of SoftBank when he met with the head of McDonald's and said, go work in, go work in technology. This was actually at Berkeley kind of right around the same time. And then after PowerPoint, he'd go on, he retired. Uh, he becomes sort of like the world historical expert in um, the concertina which is a musical instrument that was developed in England in the 1800s. He's, he's really like a renaissance man. Uh, so big thank you to Bob for writing this book and all the blogs that uh, all of this all of this material for, for this episode comes from him and it's all primary source from him. So thank you. So Dick Kramlick, who, as I mentioned, of NEA was on the board and he says, you know, I, I can totally empathize this with this being in a VC at a, a company that, you know, is going nowhere, but there's something and there's someone who wants to do something interesting. He says, yeah, sure. You know, this guy, Bob, like he may not be the most accomplished manager or had the best resume, but like he's got some sort of vision to do something. And like, rather than just taking the $1 million that's left in the company back, like, let's see what you can do. The board makes the decision to hire Bob in. And they give him 5% of the company and they 
basically turn him loose on creating his vision for what an application for the graphical user interface could be. But there's just one one kind of twist to that, which is that Rob Campbell, who was one of the original founders and was the CEO, he doesn't leave. He remains the CEO of the company of Forethought. And Rob basically goes and builds a wholly separate company doing software publishing. Because remember, this was back in the day when to actually distribute software, uh, it wasn't just like you developed it and then you like put it on the internet or in the app store and anyone could buy it. You had to actually you know, market it, literally ship it. You had literally had to, you had to get discs manufactured, put in boxes with paper manuals and shipped to computer stores. And so there was actually a publishing industry, just like there's a publishing industry for, you know, authors and books, uh, to do all this. So Rob goes and he starts a publishing division of forethought. Now the idea was that the company would build up the muscle in software publishing by publishing other developer software so that by the time the application that that Bob Gaskins was working on uh, was ready, they would be able to publish it themselves without having to have a third party publisher. That was the idea. So Rob goes, he he gets a couple developers that he's going to publish their software. The first two don't really work out. Uh, and then he signs up a database program for DOS called Nutshell that they were going to repurpose and redistribute for the Mac and they decided to come up with the name for it of FileMaker. <laughs> FileMaker. And for any longtime Apple nerds out there, you're, this should be a name that's come across your desk a few times. If you go to FileMaker.com today, it still exists. The website informs you that it is FileMaker, an Apple subsidiary. FileMaker is now owned by Apple. One of the very few Apple subsidiaries and, and a long, long time subsidiary. And it's kind of incredible they keep it a subsidiary and run it under its own brand. Like this is like this weird corner of Apple that you never hear about when you think about their, you know, four products and three sizes that are neatly shrink wrapped and, and well understood. <laughs> four products, three sizes plus FileMaker. <laughs> and uh, so the, the history on FileMaker, I mean, this is kind of incredible that within one roof. Now, the developers of FileMaker were always a, a third-party company and Forethought was just publishing the software. But FileMaker would go on to be acquired by Claris, which was the spin-out from Apple that was run by Bill Campbell, uh, the coach Bill Campbell, who is one of the most legendary figures in the Valley. Uh, again, it all comes... There, were, there, were, I wouldn't, there weren't even thousands of people. There were probably like 10 people working in technology <laughs> at this point in time. Bill would uh, would then acquire the developer of uh, FileMaker and FileMaker into Apple uh, a few years. Actually, I think within a year of when Microsoft acquired PowerPoint and Forethought. But that is a story for another day. For today, back to the application side of, of Forethought. So it turns out that Bob was not just had you know any vision for the company. He actually had the right vision for the company. So what he saw was that Everybody knew that graphical operating systems, graphical user interfaces and operating systems were coming, but this was going to enable essentially a huge wave that would wash across the whole technology industry. And you would be able to, on top of that, build applications that were enabled by now having a graphical computing environment that you couldn't do before. And the vision of what application to build that he comes up with is business presentations. Up until this point, when you made a business presentation, you would do it using 
you know, slides, literally uh, photo slides, like overhead projector, you know, put the slides in like the, the scene in Mad Men with the, uh, the Kodak carousel. <laughs> you had an art department, a corporate art department that would make presentation slides and then you would put it in your Kodak projector and like that's how you would lead a meeting. It's nostalgia, David. <laughs> it's nostalgia. <laughs> the carousel. Uh, it might be the or, best scene in, in television, like flat out. It's so good. It's so good. But Bob, so he sees this and he says, the carousel is, you know, going the way of Mad Men. This is going to be the future. People are going to make these presentations themselves, enable the business user who's the, uh, it it feels weird even to describe this in that there was once another way of doing this. Like, if you are the presenter, you are making the presentation, you can actually now make it yourself and present it yourself when you used to have an art department have to do it for you. There's this thing called Absolute PowerPoint by Ian Parker. It's like a super old website floating around. Or did, or did you find the uh, the thing at all about Whitfield Diffie? No. Okay, so there's a guy named Whitfield Diffie, and I believe he was in the Bell Northern Research Center. Folks who have studied computer science may may know Diffie from Diffie-Hellman encryption. I'm going to probably get the details wrong, but if I remember right, it was a precursor to the RSA encryption, which is the sort of basis of, of most secure transactions that happen today. But there's a great, great excerpt from this piece. At Bell Northern, Diffie was researching the security of telephone systems. In 1981, preparing to give a presentation with 35mm slides, he wrote a little program tinkering with some of the graphic software designed by a BNR colleague that allowed you to draw a black frame on a piece of paper. And then it goes on to, to point out, with a few days of effort, Diffie had pointed the way to PowerPoint. And it was it's incredibly, at Bell Northern Research, sort of coming up with this concept of maybe software can help us do this thing that you know, we have to do manually right now and, and use a little bit of software to get there. Wow. That's, I can't believe I missed that in all the research. Uh, cause that is literally, I mean, Gaskins comes from BNR. That's the germ of the idea right there. So the first thing Gaskins does, the board basically, he's not the CEO, but he's basically given CEO like oversight of the core part of the, the development part of the company, the non-publishing part of the company. He fires everyone except for one person because all the engineers that they have they're all systems engineers that are all you know coding in machine language trying to build up this uh, this operating system he keeps one and then he hires a really great developer that he knew that he had tried to recruit into bnr named dennis austin and then dennis and bob go on to the two of them basically in like a previewing the modern like lean startup team like they basically build powerpoint together with with bob as as the pm and dennis as the engineer dennis at the time was actually working at another nea portfolio company that had just shut down uh dick wasn't on the board one of one of his partners was on the board and this this tells you about the prospects for forethought and, and, and what nea thought of the company the board member at the other company that had just shut down that dennis was working at tried to stop Dennis from going to forethought because he was like, that is a sinking ship. You don't want to join that. Our firm has no faith in this company. You're throwing your career away. <laughs> um, but Gaskins was still able to recruit him. Uh, and, and he writes about this because he was able to do it because there just weren't that many 
companies out there that were working on applications for graphical user interface operating systems. So if you believe that was the future, you know, your only bet, and, and Bob also talks about this is why he joined Forethought himself, despite it being a sinking ship, there just really weren't that many opportunities to do this. It was like when the iOS, you know, app store launched and you needed, there were only like three places where you could write, <laughs> you know, iOS apps. <laughs> um, Which so, there kind of were like, you know, yeah, there, there was true. Craig Hockenberry at the Icon Factory. You know, there, there was like actually just a few people that there was whoever made uh, Super Monkey Ball. <laughs> yes, Super Monkey <laughs> Ball, which was that was a port from consoles, I think, actually. Ah, I didn't know. Yeah, I wonder what it'd be fun to go back and see, like what the first like native companies and apps for iOS well, were. You know, you know why Twitterific came out so early, the Icon Factory uh, Twitter client? No, what? So Craig Hockenberry, when Apple announced their sweet solution uh, for developers to be able to build web apps and there not being an app store, Craig was one of the people who basically cracked open the iPhone and, and figured out how to um, reverse engineer the API surface and know what the Apple engineers were doing to build the native apps. And he wrote Twitterific as a jailbroken app. So then he was sort of oh, already because when they released the SDK, I mean, it was a much more. So he had already been essentially building iOS apps before the SDK comes out. They just had to mm-hmm. rebuild it on public documented APIs. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. 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 Uh, what would be the equivalent today? I mean, I guess that's the billion dollar question. <laughs> I mean, it depends if you're long crypto or not. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> Probably also a topic for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> We, yep. we definitely have to find some crypto transactions to cover. That'd be a fun one. All right, back to the PowerPoint story. So it takes them about three years to develop PowerPoint within Forethought, beginning with just Bob and, and Dennis, um, and then eventually growing the team over time. But because they're doing this in a startup, you would think they're also publishing FileMaker. FileMaker becomes a very successful um, software on the Mac. But unfortunately, they don't have a really great deal with FileMaker. They're actually losing money on it. And they're losing money on the other uh, on the other software they're publishing too. Not good deals. They keep having to raise money all along. So from NEA and their existing investors, new investors, they're basically constantly pitching. Bob is spending his time either laying off people, pitching for money, or building PowerPoint. <laughs> Probably in, in that order. Wow. Do, do you know how much money they raised? I actually don't know the total amount that they raised, but when they do finally sell the company to Microsoft, uh, the total price of the sale is $14 million and the VCs get $12 million. So only $2 million goes to Common. I don't think that was all $12 million of liquidation preference. Like There was probably some participation in there too. But you have to imagine they raised at least... Six million, if uh, yeah. uh, if not more, if they if they're going to get twelve million, or the preference, or quickly catapulting uh, toward. I wonder what they they raised from Apple Strategic Investment Group. Well, right. So they're raising money. They're talking with Apple all along because Apple is starting to launch this Strategic Investment Group. But Apple's worried that they're not going to be able to actually ship the product, so they don't want to invest unless they're actually going to ship this strategic <laughs> product for Mac. Uh, so they keep waiting and waiting. And Apple actually only finally ends up investing uh, just about, I think, two or three months before Microsoft acquires the company. Yeah, it's in uh, January of 87. January of 87. They ship the product in February of 87. 
uh, and then the acquisition <laughs> happens over the summer. Boy, really, really uh, believing in them, Apple, like, until it's absolutely clear that they are literally printing uh, floppy disks and shipping them in one month. That's when we will invest in you. Sounds like most VCs, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, at that point, it's impressive that they managed to get there without getting the check. Yeah. And I guess they took uh, the check on, you know, we'll need to ramp production after this first run. Well, it's also like, are you really going to turn down Apple? No. Which is, yeah. at that point in time, the only platform that you are shipping your software for, because developing for Windows is a nightmare, <laughs> especially at that day and age. So Apple invests January 87. February of 1987, they do a big launch event. They're finally ready to ship what was initially Presenter, uh, was the, the name for the project over the past few years. But then they had a trademark issue right before they were about to ship. So they changed the name to PowerPoint. Shocking that you pick a term as generic as Presenter and expect that to skate through trademark review. <laughs> but it's again, it's like, you know, back to... Um, Back to the early days of iOS apps. Remember like Camera Plus and like all the, you know, super basic named apps. So they changed the name to PowerPoint right before they shipped the product. So February 1987, they do a launch event. They haven't actually shipped it yet. Uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates get wind of uh, the momentum that's building behind this product. And they actually reach out and very explicitly say they want to acquire the company even before the product ships. And to be clear what the product is at this point, like when we say when the product ships, it's software that allows you to make black and white printouts on transparencies so that you can put them on overhead projectors. Yes. <laughs> like the PowerPoint you're envisioning is very different than this PowerPoint. Like we talked about <laughs> 35 millimeter slides. They're not even there yet. They're not even in color yet. Like this is a program that helps you lay out your transparencies for overhead projectors. Yes, but apparently up until this point in time, Microsoft and Bill Gates, of course, knew that uh, software applications for graphical user interface operating systems were going to be a huge market. They were working on many of them internally, like Word and Excel. Bill Gates also knew that presentations was going to be a big market his vision for how Microsoft was going to attack it was they were going to add the option to print an outline to Word. In Word. <laughs> In it's, Word. That's so great. So so Jeff Rakes is the executive at Microsoft. Um, and there's a great excerpt here that, that Jeff Rakes wrote. He goes, I thought software to do overheads, that's a great idea. I came back to see Bill. I said, Bill, I really think we ought to do this. And Bill said, no, 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 no. That's just a feature of Microsoft Word. Just put it into Word. And I kept saying, Bill, no, it's not just a feature of Microsoft Word. It's a whole genre of how people do these presentations. And to his credit, he listened to me and ultimately decided to go forward and buy this company in Silicon Valley called Forethought for the product known as PowerPoint. And here we are today. It's like, it's how freaking businesses communicate internally. Like, it's how every, it's how the military communicates. It's how, like, it is the de facto way for people to get ideas across to other people. You can hate that. You can love that. It can be your tool of choice or you can be your nemesis in an organization. You know, it's not that long ago. Like, it's it's the late 80s and the belief was, eh, that's, that's a feature of a word processor. It's a feature of word, yeah. Well, it's so I was going to save this till, till the end because I think it's, like, the most fun idea to this whole thing. Forethought has is this, like, <laughs> tragic history of a company. They're always perpetually raising money. They're doing bridge round after bridge round after bridge round. It's impossible to raise money. The irony is that 
because of PowerPoint, like PowerPoint becomes the vehicle <laughs> by which more money is raised in the history of humankind over the mm. next 30 years than has ever been raised in the, you know, in, in mankind's <laughs> history until that point. <laughs> uh, and the irony is the company that made it could not raise money. <laughs> Uh, so great. But it also reminds me of, uh, of the Dropbox episode and, you know, Steve Jobs telling Drew Halston that, you know, it's a feature, not a product. <laughs> $10 billion feature. I guess there was no Jeff Rakes around in, in Apple and in, in whenever it was 2010 to still tell Steve that, uh, no, this, this is a product, not a feature. No, no, no. Did your research get into the talks that Microsoft was having with another potential company? Only a little bit. They supposedly there were two other companies that they were evaluating once Jeff Rakes had convinced Bill Gates that this actually needed to be a product within the suite of applications that Microsoft productivity applications Microsoft would make for Windows. But they evaluated that the PowerPoint was the best. So apparently Dave Weiner had a company called More, capital M-O-R-E, and Microsoft actually issued a letter of intent to purchase them. And ended up walking that back. They basically took it back the same day that they gave Forethought their their offer to acquire them. And basically, on April 28th, 1987, this is right after Forethought had shipped the, the first run of PowerPoint, a group of Microsoft senior execs went and spent a day at Forethought to hear about the initial PowerPoint sales on, on Macintosh and what their plans for Windows were. And that day, as soon as they all got back to Redmond, that next day, they they sent the letter withdrawing their earlier letter of intent to, to purchase, mm. which is interesting, interesting, totally crazy. Well, that makes sense because uh, what I did research was the back and forth on the acquisition from the Forethought side. So this was end of February. Microsoft reach out, reaches out to Forethought, says, we want to get into this market. We want to buy you. We want to do this fast. A couple weeks later in mid-March, Jeff Rakes and John Shirley, who was then the president of Microsoft, come down to Silicon Valley. Forethought is based in Sunnyvale at this point. And they have dinner. They offer $5.3 million to buy the company in cash. The Forethought board meets and decides they haven't shipped the product yet. This is still a couple days before they ship the product. And decides, uh, you know, that's not that much money. The VCs have probably put at least that much money into the company. They're like we'll roll the dice. We'll ship the product. They ship the product in mid-March and it's a huge success. It sells a million dollars in its first month. They they, they instantly sold out all 10,000 they had printed. Uh, which is, it's just so crazy to be literally sold out. <laughs> yeah, of sorry, you, like, you can't get the bits anymore. They're sold out. You can't get the bits anymore. They're <laughs> sold out. Only so many bits. Uh, <laughs> um, so then after that, that's when Microsoft comes back down and meets with them in April. And then uh, immediately after that, I guess they cancel the LOI that they had with more to acquire them. They decide PowerPoint is what they've been looking for. They need to acquire Forethought. Uh, and then they come back with a much improved offer. Can you imagine like being Dave Weiner in that situation? What a bummer. <laughs> uh, total bummer. <laughs> uh, what could have been? Uh, what would have happened otherwise? So interestingly, though, <laughs> the offer that they come back with, uh, this is, you know, VCs sometimes uh, 
do things to hurt themselves. Uh, they come back with an offer to acquire Forethought for $12 million, but in Microsoft stock. <laughs> the board is happy with the offer, but they believe that Microsoft stock is overvalued because it was up 6x in the past year. And they didn't want to take Microsoft stock. They wanted cash. Now, Were they public? Yeah, Microsoft yeah, had gone public take, the year you before. You could just sell the stock. Like, what's the big deal? Of course. Of course you could sell the stock. Or you could hold the stock <laughs> and make billions of dollars. But, you know there we are vcs cash is king david so the cash is king cash is king cash is king so the board says no we don't want this billions of dollars of upside in microsoft <laughs> stock uh and they call themselves venture capitalists there also were a bunch of other weird terms in there like they particularly they wanted the whole company to move up to redmond and join microsoft uh in redmond in, in, in seattle uh the team didn't want to do that they wanted to stay in silicon valley so they go back to microsoft they have the boards negotiate because uh, they're still VCs on the Microsoft board at this point in time. And Microsoft comes back with $14 million in cash and the acquisition gets done in early summer. And in particular, the company and Forethought, uh, as part of the negotiation, they get to stay in Silicon Valley, not just keep developing PowerPoint themselves there, but they get made into a whole official business unit of Microsoft, the graphics business unit of the applications division and they have a mandate to hire and build and run that whole division out of silicon valley so after the acquisition closes as we mentioned at the top of the show they move the company from sunnyvale uh, up to sand hill road to tony sand hill road where all the venture capitalists are uh right next to right next to stanford and they move into the quadris complex on sand hill road uh take over the whole complex that then is the complex after microsoft leaves where benchmark uh has their i think their first and longtime office shasta is there uh many other many other vc august capital is there and august capital was the vc investor in microsoft are all there in uh in that that complex it had been something else before microsoft came in, but microsoft made it into a into a tech complex wow wow and there's a big lesson in here i mean this is this is one of the great quotes from from bob that he sent over i don't think i'm spoiling anything here in this opening line i think you guys know the end of the story but PowerPoint has been so very successful after its acquisition, and mostly, as far as I can see, because Microsoft in 1987 lacked any technology or experience to try to manage us, manage its first distant location, and so accidentally avoided smothering its new product while providing what was really vital to us, money, industry clout, strategic tips from Bill Gates and Mike Maple Sr. during confusing times for Windows developers." <laughs> uh and was it ever um yeah we we have to say once again thank you thank you bob to for your email to us and uh and writing the book about this uh you, you listeners you can tell we're we're geeking out over this because uh it's so cool to have such primary sources for for acquired so yeah that's that's what happens i mean microsoft really does leave powerpoint alone uh it's the original facebook style acquisition and even though PowerPoint would ultimately come to be in 1990 with the launch of Windows 3.0. The Office bundle is introduced and PowerPoint comes to be bundled with Word and Excel um, and sold together as a set. Which actually was launched first for the Mac in 1989. The three were bundled together. Yes, PowerPoint became a, a component of the Office suite for Mac and then in 1990 for Windows. 
Ah, interesting. Well, that was because Windows 3.0 didn't launch until 1990. Uh, Bob also talked about this is really getting into the weeds of you know both history and technology here. But before Windows 3.0, like it was impossible to develop for Windows. Like it was nobody outside of Microsoft essentially could write applications for it. It was so buggy. And so the PowerPoint group, again, being independent, refused to ship a version of PowerPoint for Windows (laughs) until a stable version of Windows came out. So you could get Word and Excel on Windows 2.0, but you couldn't get PowerPoint simply because Bob and the whole group was like, no, we're not shipping for this piece of crap operating system. And, And the amazing thing is it took a while to get it to get it all integrated. So you had Word and Excel that felt very similar, but then you had PowerPoint 4 that, you know, was starting to actually converge, but it still looked quite different from the, you know, the original um, Word and Excel on Windows. And it wasn't actually until um, PowerPoint 95, which used the version number of PowerPoint 7.0, where they actually totally converged and used the same version number. And the reason it went from 4 to 7 was to catch up with the Excel and Word version numbers. So there Uh. was never a PowerPoint (laughs) 5 or 6. Five and six. Yeah, That's it's awesome. it's the uh, Windows nine of uh, of PowerPoint. <laughs> the iPhone ten. The iPhone nine. <laughs> the iPhone nine. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Well, that is the story, more or less, uh, of PowerPoint. And I'll throw out a few numbers just to just to like understand the ramp here a little bit. So PowerPoint has been phenomenally received since day one. So it was overhead projectors, and then it was 35 millimeter slides, and it was in color. And then they started to actually um, find a way to to you know make it. I think it was actually it was like a a video basically that that was projected out. Let's see. The third version for Windows and Mac uh, in 1992 introduced video output of virtual slideshows to digital projectors, which would over time, of course, completely replace physical transparencies and slides. But the sales numbers are quite staggering. So that first 10,000 uh, at 100 bucks a pop sold out right away. That was in 87 and 87 and then yeah. it comes and only for Mac and only for Mac. It comes out in, in office in 89 um, and then for Windows in, in 1990. By the last six months of 1992, PowerPoint revenue alone, not Office bundled, was running at a rate of over $100 million annually. Incredibly fast-growing business. In 1997, there's a couple more great stats here. So fast forward another five years, there's over 20 million copies of PowerPoint in use, and that the total revenues from PowerPoint over its first decade, from 87 to 96, was over a billion dollars. I'm going to stop before we get to a cloud world because that's when the accounting gets a little funky inside of Microsoft. But um, in 2009, there was a a, a group called MBD, which was uh, Microsoft Business Division, I believe, which included Dynamic CRM, but that was a smaller group, did $18.9 billion in revenue and $12 billion in operating income. So, you know, enormous behemoth. It's a, it's a freaking Windows-sized business for Microsoft having Office all up. This is the power of if you recognize a massive wave like this, which is like the deployment of a fundamentally new, you know, technology mode of interaction and what that can enable, you can build enormous businesses as an application on top of it. I mean, this is the same story as Uber, right? This is the same story as Instagram. Uh, It's just in an office environment and with PCs. It's incredible that there was instant product market fit, even as the product changed so dramatically. The world wanted exactly what PowerPoint was the first, second, and third times, and it just it just 
it occupies uh not only was the the niche enormous the the market for digital presentations but powerpoint right now owns 95% of that market like that is that is un yeah unreal which is funny like in tech we think like oh you know lots of people use keynote now and like you know keynote's great like we use keynote at wave but like we're such a small piece of the overall market yeah. and you know it's funny uh, while i love keynote and while i've i've dabbled in google slides i end up using powerpoint more often than anything else because I know that if I'm working on a deck and somebody else is going to come in and work on it too, they probably have a history of using and understanding PowerPoint. I don't want to throw them into a new tool set. I mean, it is just, it is the, the power of lock-in and network effects and standards and it, it it's just hard to shake. Yep. If you send it to someone else as a PowerPoint file, not as a PDF, like, you know that they're going to have PowerPoint installed on their machines. One One quick thing I want to say, just on the the idea of this massive wave coming and then building, uh, conceiving and building an application to ride that wave, I really, really recommend everyone go read Bob's book, The Sweating Bullets book. It's just, it's so good and so fun from a history perspective. But he also goes into great detail and he kept detailed notes throughout the development of PowerPoint, you know, about his, how the idea came together, how he did market research for it, uh, how they basically feature prioritized um, why they thought that they could beat competition. And it's really a great example of how to think about, you know, really a business plan for, for a new, uh, application product in a, in a new technology paradigm. So really great case study. Yeah. Worth reading. Seconded. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Should we move on to category? So I have this as a product. It was its own business unit, and it was a self-sustaining or i don't know about sustaining but it was a a product that they were selling and was selling well and you know they had the whole channel to sell it ultimately 
Microsoft was going to figure out a way to integrate this into every other piece of their business and just make it a product that used the Microsoft sales channel, the Microsoft sort of distribution relationships. It only took them a couple of years to really build the 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 ultimate bundle in Microsoft Office out of it. My assessment is product. Yeah, 100%. Like it's a artifact of history that it was officially a business line for uh, a number of years. A cool one, given all the externalities it produced in in on Sand Hill Road and in Silicon Valley, but uh, 100% of product. Also, we didn't talk about this uh, in the history, but this is a good point for it. We joke on this show about the old quote that like there's two ways to make money in business, you know, bundling and unbundling. The bundling of Word, Excel, and PowerPoint into Office was one of the best and most genius business decisions of all time because when they did it, each of those products was selling separately for $500. So you would have had to pay $1,500 to buy all three. All three of them had competitors in each of their, you know, word processing presentations and spreadsheets that sold for about the same price. But when Microsoft bundled all three of them, they sold the three of them together for $1,000. And there was no user who needed one of those, but not the others. Like if you were an office user, you needed all three of them. So now you had the choice of you could pay $1,000 for all three of them from the, you know, made by the company that also made your operating system, or you could buy inferior versions separately for 1500 <laughs> and they just completely mopped up the whole market. And there's a great Bill Gates quote here that is complete with an ultimatum. So here's an internal memo by Bill Gates um, announcing the plan to integrate the applications themselves. And this is in February of 1991 at the end of PowerPoint 3.0 development as they're starting to shift toward working on a sort of integrated platform. Another important question is what portion of our application sales over time will be a set of applications versus a single product? Please assume that we stay ahead in integrating our family together and evaluating our future strategies. The product teams will deliver on this. I believe that we should position the office as our most important application. Boom. And I'm not just I'm not just justifying my career here because I um I served when I was at Microsoft both in my internship and in my first job I sh- I served on a shared team so we basically built shared components across the web apps and then later the the iPad and Mac apps but the notion of of sharing between the products to promote the business the the business of selling a bundled product group uh, dates back to 1991. Well, that is the sound of many other mid-90s software companies <laughs> and startups going out of business. <laughs> and, and as one of my managers at Microsoft said, in the 90s, there were 747s flying cash to Redmond. It was just full of cash. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's so funny. Like, that seems like such a different world. It is. Like, that is a totally different world from the world we live in today. Uh, but it was not all that long ago. Like, I remember all that. You worked there, you know? Yeah, and there's still, you know, I haven't worked there in five-ish years now or four years, but, you know, the, the, there was still a very strong culture of of memory around that and of, of wounds from the Department of Justice days and the cultures that are created by these things and the, the memory of tapping that incredible product market fit well and, and just knowing what that feels like and, and feeling like you're invincible, they last for two decades, three decades. Unfortunately, they tend to outlast their useful life. <laughs> yeah, culture's a hard thing to yeah. shake. Yeah. Well, um, should we do what would have happened otherwise? On yeah. That yeah, so I've got three of them. 
we've basically covered them, but Jeff Rakes's team, before they identified more and before they identified uh, PowerPoint, they were working on an internal version of this. And it wasn't, you know, I don't, it, it certainly wasn't exactly this, but they had a thesis around sort of graphics based presentation computing that they were going to do no matter what. When Jeff was heading the marketing for the application division, um, they sort of put pen to paper on what would a presentation product look like, and uh, that's that's sort of when they started looking around to, to to acquire. So it could have been built internally. Who knows if it would have been as successful? I'm not sure how much nuance there was to nailing the exact right product at this point because I just don't think there were that many products in the market. So I think had they built it internally, they they probably would have still been able to define the market. Yeah. There were no other products in the market. By the time PowerPoint shipped with Windows 3.0 in 1990, they were still, it was the first, this is incredible, like the first graphical presentation software for Windows. Uh, what were the other people in the market doing? <laughs> yeah. Now there'd be three other venture back companies, somebody doing it on blockchain and like 150 <laughs> knockoff Chinese clones by the time, like <laughs> you wake up the next morning and you're like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so true. That's so true. My other two. Yeah. They, they could have built it into word. Um, and they could have bought, uh, Dave Weiner's more. It seems like there was no way that Microsoft wasn't going to attack the market at this point. Who knows, right? But I don't think history would have been any different, really, whether they had acquired PowerPoint or not, or taken any of those paths. Like they would have ended up one way or another with the right product in market. They would have bundled it with Word and Excel, or it would have been a part of Word or whatever. Like Microsoft was going to own business productivity application software on top of Windows. Mm -hmm. Like that was going to happen regardless. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, the biggest difference is it probably wouldn't be called PowerPoint. I mean, maybe there's a world where it wouldn't be a separate application and then maybe slide culture and PowerPoint culture wouldn't have grown up in quite the same way. But the question uh, is, if they, if they built it into Word, is there any way that somebody else would have come out with this format and had it become dominant and large? Like, I, I, there just weren't enough companies capable of making and distributing software at that point. I, I think Microsoft could have like screwed around for a couple more years and then and then nailed it by either acquisition. Well, this is or, I mean, this is why Bob and Dennis, despite having plenty of career prospects and opportunities, other other places went to forethought. Um was like if you wanted to do this kind of stuff, there just weren't many places to do it. So you move into tech themes? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but keep any companies separate to make them more successful. I think that's a huge one here. Avoid smothering. So provide the resources that are helpful. Don't trample and then figure out when bundling makes sense. You sort of see the same thing with Instagram, um, bundling the uh, ad units to advertisers between Facebook and Instagram. And the um, network too. Like, I mean, Instagram bootstrapped the social connection network off of Twitter initially. But then when it became part of Facebook and like Facebook started pumping it into the newsfeed and then both bi-directionally of like Instagram appearing in the newsfeed and on Instagram, like, oh, your Facebook here, you know, connect with your Facebook friends. You know, that's a huge example to me too of, of that bundling. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we're starting to identify a trend of um, like keep the development team separate pour resources on 
allow sort of uh, separate cultures, at least for a time, but figure out how to bundle to customers. And ultimately, you need to do more integration with the product teams in order to get there. So you're not sort of shipping your org chart in weird ways. But I think that's important. Are there other good examples of making an acquisition, keeping the team separate, keeping the product separate and bundling for customers? Amazon and Audible is a, is a decent one. The, the, the Audible team still entirely separate, and yet you can buy your Audible books sort of through the Amazon product page. Yep. I'm having a hard time thinking of really successful instances of this uh, outside of Instagram, PowerPoint. You could argue maybe uh, Lucasfilm by keeping Lucasfilm completely separate creatively, but providing the both the resources to make more films and more content and then the distribution um, that Lucasfilm didn't have on its own. It's almost like there's different levels of this, like the, the keep them separate and pour the right resources on and share the right learnings is like table stakes. But it's like this total home run scenario if you could figure out how to bundle the front end to customers. Like, have you um, have you noticed if, you, if you're a Prime subscriber now, you become a Twitch Prime subscriber and you have one subscription to a to a streamer that comes with that That's sort of an interesting example. Although they're cross pollinating the teams a lot more than uh, well, it's a few years in now, so it's not so different than this. I think we should keep an eye out for that in future episodes, though. You know, the only other theme that I have is one that um, that Bob mentions in his in his blog post and, and in in the book. The quote that he has is, "A year or two is an eternity in a rapidly exploding market," and that's so true. Like the amount of time that passes in between, like throughout this history, is is fairly short, and the the time that the window is open to create a PowerPoint like product or to create a, you know, Uber like product or an Instagram like product is very, very short. Like they, these windows don't come along very often when they do, like you need to be delivering the product into market, like in that window, or if you're too early, like the market's not going to be ready to adopt. It really was windows 3.0 shipping, getting mass adoption uh, and having PowerPoint ready and shipping with that. Like before that, Forethought probably would have been fine and PowerPoint would have been okay if it were just on Mac. But like whoever shipped first with the first mass adopted version of Windows was going to win. You know, and similarly, you know, with, uh, with the iPhone and, and Android, like, you know, when you were the first application that just worked, that was a major new, you know, category enabled by the computing paradigm, that was the time to win. Yeah. And as I'm reflecting on it a little bit in starting companies and trying to make bets on these platform waves, you sort of have to believe two things. You have to believe that that platform is going to become super dominant and that, you know, it's going to be totally pervasive and change consumer behavior and have incredible um, just sort of traction in the market. But you also have to believe that you can build a standalone venture scale business by just being on that platform and by being an app on that platform. And like for Windows 3.0, there was tons of money to be made by or even 3.1. Like if you're the first to market on that incredibly pervasive expanding platform, 
you also have to have the faith that Microsoft is going to allow you to monetize on their platform enough so you can be a venture scale business. You know, the Instagram is a kind of a bad example of that because they weren't monetizing when they sold to Facebook. But it's the question we ask, ask ourselves a lot when we're trying to make a bet on a new emerging platform is, is it going to be huge? And are we going to be able to singularly be here and build a big business. And I think those are the two questions you have to ask about VR. I remember when the Apple TV developer platform came out probably three years ago, I I was considering making a bet there. Uh, I don't think it sort of changed consumer behavior or became dominant enough, but we were thinking, is this a new, is this a new app store? Is this a new iOS? And it's, it's hard to know when those two characteristics are, are present. And I think, you know, that's why they call them bets. You got to, you got to put your, yeah. your chips down a little. Well, what's what's interesting about this though is like this uh, wave and and then mobile and then potentially you know VR or even blockchain in the future are the same in that like it was back in 1982, 83, 84 when people knew people in the tech world knew that the graphical user interface was the next wave, but it wasn't until 1990 when Windows 3.0 shipped that that was the right window to be hitting the market. You know, so like that's a six to eight year gap there. And I feel like VR is kind of like in the same point, like everybody who's, you know, used VR, who's been in rec room, you know, knows that this is the future. Right. But like we're now like maybe we're in like 1986, you know, or 87. But there was that article that just came out uh, this past weekend that Apple is working on a VR and AR headset scheduled to ship in 2020 currently. Like maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the Windows 3.0 of AR and VR. Like we know it's coming, but the window is not yet ripe to build the, you know, to realize the massive opportunity. You know, as we work on companies at PSL, one of the ways to think about do we know enough about the space yet to start a company we've seen it come to fruition a few times where one characteristic to prioritize in the early stage is ability to adapt to change rather than certainty about your your plan and making it a good plan because there's a few times where we've seen a company that just needed to get into market to both learn about the market and uh, uh, sort of develop that sixth sense about a trend of where they need to be in a year or two that you really wouldn't be without operating in this space. And so it's, can I only raise a little money? Can I stay super lean and nimble? And can I be first to jump onto new opportunities when they they emerge and there's a sea change in the market? With, with forethought, I think they felt around in the dark for a while to kind of get there. And then it wasn't that great of a venture outcome where it was a terrible venture outcome but you know it, it does speak to like well it would no it was it was like an okay venture outcome i mean remember this was 1987 they more like than returned capital was a lot more than yeah yeah right it was an okay but i think outcome. it does speak to the merits of uh if you're already loosely operating there and you have the agility to sort of move around to where the market is going you're in an amazing place to catch on to one of these rocket ship platforms as they're taking off where you want to be is is where PowerPoint was, was having enough experience in the market to have the product right yes, and still be able to hang on until the window opened. And then when the window open, opens, just shoot through it. It's a delicate art. Uh, 
I've got one more before we get to grading on um, tech themes. Listeners who haven't heard us talk about this, Acquired started because David and I were getting drinks and we would we would like get drinks and catch up maybe every other month or so. And we wanted partially wanted a reason to just ha- hang out and talk more. But the other part of it was uh, we were sitting there and I, David, I, I pitched you on two podcast ideas. One was like we should cover acquisitions that actually went well because the trope is that none of them ever go well and they implode. The other one was why don't we do a podcast series where every episode is about the rare company that manages to have a billion dollar plus innovation twice. That's right. I remember that. And we decided not to do that because there just weren't that many. It would be a very short, very short podcast uh, series. Yeah. And I, and I think our thesis was basically like companies have the magic moment just, just once because they're so rare that they find that product market fit, the monetization where like just everything works. And then after that, companies keep finding ways to grow and expand that thing, but they generally fail to find a second complete one of those, and particularly one that works under the same roof and doesn't interfere with the other main business. Microsoft did it. Like, they're one of the few in the world. So l- let's look at like 2009, 2010, because it's a it's the last time that the business was kind of cleanly broken out where you could see Office and you could see Windows and they didn't have insane ways of grouping and, and reporting the financials for these these divisions. But both both of them were doing 18 to $20 billion a year. Yes, they built each other up. And yes, there's reasons why the Department of Justice intervened because they were propping each other up and Windows was using Office to create lock-in and an Office was creating a, a, a big moat for Windows. But in a lot of ways, you know, they, these were two completely separate multi, multi, multi-billion dollar businesses. Office, as I was trying to do some of the math, they, they've probably done over $300 billion of revenue since the beginning of Office. And wow. just, just Office, Office not, including, not including, Windows. including Windows. Wow. And wow. That, that, that's just completely mind-blowing. Like that, that is better than the vast majority of companies could ever hope to do alone. And this was just shipping a really incredible bundle. I don't think it would be where it is today without having PowerPoint. I mean, it is so de facto the way that that people communicate. We'd be missing an entire paradigm of the way that people communicate ideas. And that's a huge piece of what Office is all about. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up before, right before grading. (laughs) <laughs> because not I think, to load you know, it or anything <laughs> not to load it or anything but uh well okay should we go integrating yeah let's do it okay i'm gonna go first with what i was gonna do before hearing that um argument i was gonna give this a b plus which is funny we we say we, we need to stop giving b plus b pluses are like the standard grade on unacquired b plus a minus because like yeah it was great like super good execution like you know powerpoint was the right thing to do buying it versus building it was the right thing to do but like like we talked about a minute ago this would have happened anyway i think but what if it hadn't happened anyway like what if um you know what if (laughs) bill gates hadn't listened to jeff rakes and like had shipped a feature in word and this whole a paradigm wouldn't have been created but like having the three products and being able to bundle them as three was key to winning. Like if it were only two, if it were only word and 
Excel, competitors, they wouldn't have been able to reduce the price of the bundle enough that competitors to those products also wouldn't have been able to reduce their prices. And so by like having the three of them and literally knocking the price of a full product off of the bundle of the three of them, like no competitor could keep up. Well, no competitor could keep up anyway because no one else owned the platform. Uh, Lotus had its time, but... I mean, they were making such ridiculous margins on these things that that and they were selling so many that the fixed costs were completely de minimis. I don't think it was like a, we lowered our prices so much by having a third app that we could put the other guys out of business because our prices were so low. I think it was like we had every competitive advantage in the world because everyone was using it on our operating system and we had all of the sales channels and we invented enterprise software. That's true. But like WordPerfect had... A enormous market share in the DOS era yep. and brought a lot of that market share into the Windows era. Um, and it's true. It's very true. And the feature checkboxes wars where, you know, it was Lotus and WordPerfect and, and Office all against each other. And it was who could add more buttons on their toolbars. Yep. Yep. All right. I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to rest my pen at B+. You're so go harsh. Ahead. This is an A. This is so clearly an A. They turned $14 million into hundreds of billions. Wait, you were just let's, arguing against let's say me. I was arguing billion. your case a minute ago. Now you're arguing my case. <laughs> uh, look, I'm going to play devil's advocate no matter what, but I, I see why it's a B plus because what, when I was thinking through it, the question is in our grading, should we consider not only the opportunity cost of the capital, like so if you consider they turned four, $14 million into $100 billion over a 25, 30-year lifespan, whatever it is, like, it, it, holy crap, how's that not an A+. The only reason why I would knock it down a little bit is it wasn't actually the insight of buying this particular company and bringing this particular team and product. It was, it was a incredible insight that this was just a puzzle piece of in the same way that um when we did the siri acquisition when we did the sound jam acquisition it looks actually a lot more like an apple acquisition where this was a thing they were going to do anyway and then this was a building block on which they sort of shaped it into their vision now i don't know if if bob would agree with us and maybe there was a lot more to powerpoint and and how PowerPoint actually ended up shaping the the unique and special thing that was the the large scale successful PowerPoint. But I'm going to go A, not A plus, because it wasn't uh, a thing that they wouldn't have been able to do without buying it. There we have it. All right, some divergence finally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I'm, I'm, we need some we need some more divergence, uh, if for no other reason than to keep it interesting. There we have it. Should we move on to carveouts? Let's do it. You want to go first? No, you. By all means. All right. I read a really great Hacker News thread a couple weeks ago. Well, I feel like it's like uh, 2008 or nine. I read a really great Hacker News thread. <laughs> this is a throwback episode anyway, <laughs> so. We'll link to uh, uh, both the comment that I'm going to describe and the the other comment that recommends the book. But there's two comments in this, this uh, thread that are amazing. One recommends the book Mindfulness in Plain English. I'm a complete and total novice to this, and I would claim no no wisdom or or serious practice, uh, but I'm, I'm very interested in the topic and looking for more resources of mindfulness and meditation. And it is a book that explains the uh, Vipassana meditation 
information in a way that is completely non-woo-woo. It is very much like how you can wrap your logical mind around this process. And let's say you don't you don't want to hear any of the sentences that leave you staring off into space and go, I have no idea what they just said. And I find that completely meaningless, though it sounds cool. This book doesn't have any of that. And it's got a, a lot of really great sort of, if you're an engineer or or type A or analytical person who listens to this show and you've thought about meditation, I, this is a really, really cool and interesting book. So basically um, probably 100% of our audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the the other piece in that uh, in that thread was somebody who was describing, uh, and this is another analytical engineering type person describing their experience with uh, meditation and and sort of what the process is in the terms of an audio engineer, and he basically said that meditation is like turning down the gain knob because when you're truly sort of silencing your mind and keeping your thoughts focused, really crazy things are going to happen. And you can't have that happen to you when you're outside in the world, when the sort of gain knob is all the way up, or you could basically blow out your speakers. It's, it's too intense. And so why you, why you meditate is to sort of turn down the gain knob or the volume knob. So you can experience all this crazy stuff in a really controlled, quiet, experience. But then the goal is, as you become more of a master of this, to to turn it up over time and be able to be mindful in real world settings without sort of the danger of quote unquote blowing out your speakers. And I thought that was like the coolest way to think about it. And the first time that this sort of arena of, of thought and practice uh, made sense to my, my analytical brain. Hmm. What a cool analogy. I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, I thought so too. That's really so we'll cool. link both of those in the uh, in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself because there's a there's a few more paragraphs in there about the um, the metaphor that I'm not doing justice to. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's a deep and um, uh, noble uh, <laughs> carve out. Mine. Uh, <laughs> well, on the surface, mine is going to be completely the opposite of that, but fits in with the theme of the show with, um, you know, waves and applications coming to the waves. Ben, have you been riding electric scooters? over the past few weeks? I haven't. They're, they're not up in Seattle. I've been uh, riding, uh, riding a lot of the bikes. You got to buy one. So many of the electric scooter sharing companies are now in San Francisco. Uh, this is the phenomenon that started about eight months ago in LA, in Santa Monica with Bird and is sharing just like, you know, bike sharing companies like Ofo and Linebike and uh, the companies in China that do bike sharing, but for electric scooters that are literally like razor scooters with batteries in them and electric motors in the wheels. And these things are amazing. You can, you know, ride it around the city, get where you're going. You just leave it on the sidewalk. Somebody else in the app finds them with GPS location, goes, picks it up, rides it to wherever they're going, leaves it where, where it is. Okay, so cities are up in arms about this because there's like litter of, you know, electric skateboards or electric, uh, <laughs> electric scooters all over the sidewalks. But that aside, this is like the most amazing transportation innovation I think that I've seen, you know, since Uber. It's so cool. Like the form factor is perfect. They just nailed it. It's the Windows 3.0 of light electric vehicles. <laughs> and it's great because like, Unlike an electric skateboard where like you're on a skateboard, you have to know how to ride a skateboard. And even if you know how to ride a skateboard, like you still can feel a little out of control on it. With a scooter, you've got the handlebars. So you have a lot more control. 
And at the same time, it only takes up the space of a skateboard and is collapsible and is lightweight and portable. It's great. I've been riding all over the city on these things. And are, so are much you, so, I actually do, bought do my own. Do you have one? Ah. I bought my own, yes. So on Amazon, Amazon Prime delivered in two days, you can get a nine-bot electric scooter, ES1 electric scooter. This thing goes 13 miles an hour, has about a 15, well, depending on how much you weigh, because that can have a big impact on it, 10 to 15 mile range on a charge. It's great. Is, it's, is this the one you'd recommend? Should we? I, I would highly recommend it. $2.99 on Amazon, delivered free, you know, prime. And it's great. Like I basically don't use my car or my bike anymore. Wow. And listeners can't even see all the weight you've gained. <laughs> Uh, well maybe i'll have to do some you know meditation and mindfulness to think about (laughs) exercising (laughs) (laughs) oh that's cool i yeah in seattle i don't know if it'll work as well as san francisco because what you the one time you don't want to be riding these things is in In the the rain rain. yeah Mm. well they could be huge in the summer it's still pretty cool like even on the hills of San Francisco, like there's enough torque in these things that like you can with the really steep hills, you have to kick a little bit in addition to the motor, but you can go up hills. Like what's the, what's the magic here? Like, like we've had sort of e-bikes and scooters and stuff forever. Like, is there something now where mass production is, is cheap and better for certain parts? Is it lithium ion batteries? Like why now with the, the scooters? I think it's a couple things. It's batteries and range at a certain minimum acceptable power and torque that you can deliver. It's the hub electric motors in the wheels. So these things don't have traditional electric motors. They have literally like very tiny motors built into the small seven or eight inch wheels on these things. Um, So that keeps the size and weight down. And then I think it's also just like figuring out that this is the form factor that once you hit those minimum requirements, like it's so much better than a bicycle because it's so much smaller. So like when you're riding it, you only take up the width of a human being, you know, and you're in the like rel- mass of a human being plus like 15 pounds. Whereas when you're on a bike, like a bike is big, it's bulky. You can't fold it up and bring it inside. You know, you got to ride in bike lanes, like all this stuff. Whereas a scooter, it's literally, it's just like making the human more efficient bionic man indeed (laughs) it's like a bicycle for a bicycle (laughs) Uh, all right on that note (laughs) all right listeners if you are not subscribed and you want to hear more you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client if you feel so inclined we'd love a review on uh on apple podcasts or a comment on breaker or a tweet or a uh whatever the kids are doing these days we appreciate you listening and uh, and hope you enjoy the show. We'll talk to you soon.